And the Arctic has always been changing. There's always been uh, shifts in uh, the weather and climate from interannually from year to year, and the same with sea ice. And what makes climate change so challenging for Inuit livelihoods and lifestyles is the fact that the, the changes that they're witnessing right now are unprecedented and really unpredictable. Welcome to Science for the People. I'm your host, Marion Kilgore. Today we're discussing Arctic sea ice and the effects of climate change. Later, I'll be speaking to Trevor Bell, a geographer at Memorial University. But joining me first is Rex Howell, the Nunatsiavit operations lead for the Smart Ice Program, based out of Nain in Labrador, Canada. So thank you so much for speaking to me today. Good day, Mary. Nice to talk to you. So to get us started off, I know we have listeners from all around the world. So for those not familiar with Canadian geography, could you explain where Nain is? Nain is in Newfoundland and Labrador. Um, it's one of the newest Canadian Inuit regions um, called Nunatsiavut, so that's why some people may be confused with it. So we are in the, we are geographically, we are on the easternmost side of Canada, uh, just past the border to Quebec, and then if I were to head east by um, a boat, I would either run into Greenland or Europe, <laughs> depending on how far I went. So I'm, I'm right down the ocean. That's where I live. I'm, I'm on one of the I'm on the far eastern point of North America. Right. So we're we're speaking in the middle of summer. Um, yes. But what times of year is the sea ice uh, sort of in use by communities in the north? So where I live, um, it you know it, we're, we're far enough north that in in Canada that. Um, when the sea, the, all the sea ice and all the freshwater ice will freeze here. Um, it, it is getting later and later in the year. Um, nowadays, um, it'll freeze solid in around Nane, uh, you know, really dependent on the weather nowadays. It's either late December and this year was really late. It was, we didn't get around on snowmobile on the sea ice until, um, safely until mid January. And um, it'll just freeze solid, and we'll just use the sea ice um, by snowmobiles. And then this year, my last snowmobile run, I believe, was, I'm going to say, in May. From your experience and the experience of the communities that you work with, um, the time when the sea ice starts to be safe is changing? Yeah. Uh, when I was at, When I was young... It, was, it wasn't strange for people to be using snowmobiles on the CA safely, you know, as early as middle November, late November. But nowadays, like um, this year, we didn't get out on the sea ice until middle of January. And, you know, it, it's progressively getting later and later every year with climate change happening. Um, so we, like, even I see the difference in how the climate is affecting when the sea ice forms later in the year. And like I said, just this past year, we didn't get out on a sea ice until January, and that's really late for us. Yeah. In an ideal situation uh, where you had sort of an extensive winter with good sea ice, how how does the sea ice normally get used by communities? Uh, for us here in Nunatsiavut in Labrador, um, we, you know, in the winter, it's, it's our, it's our roads. Um, you know, when it's safely frozen everywhere, I mean, people travel to their, they can travel and hit and go hunt our traditional foods. Um, we can go to our, our traditional ice fishing places. Um, and some people, you know, a lot of people here in Nain go to their cabins. So, I mean, you know, once that frees up, happens people are free to travel again instead of being just you know landlocked in their own com- in their home community so and i you know i'm from alberta i am very landlocked so i don't <laughs> quite have a good idea why why is the sea ice important as a highway why isn't overland travel really practical well maine is like i mentioned earlier on maine is we're a a spit of land 
surrounded by salt water with, you know, hundreds of thousands of islands around us and different areas to go hunting and fishing. So when we're in, when we're in that time span where it's just freezing up and it's not safe to travel the ice, um, you know, people start getting antsy and, you know, they, 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 they start getting low on their traditional food. So, I mean, by the time it's safe to go out, um, you know, people travel the, the sea ice. Like I said, it's our highway. It's for the Inuit people, you know, sea ice was just a, a normal part of our culture. I mean, it, it was either just water or ice. So, I mean, for us to have, um, you know, to, with the freedom when it freezes up to go hunting and fishing and, um, like a, uh, people also use uh, wood here. So, I mean, it's, so when people uh, had the roots to do the wooding, the hunting, the fishing safely, um, you know, people are happy them and they're out on the land. And for, you know, people, that's a huge thing to be out on the land. So is it just once it starts snowing and winter sets in, um, that the sea ice isn't easier, it's easier to travel over the sea ice than it is to travel through the snow on the spit of land connecting you to the rest of the mainland? Yeah, again, so we're right on the eastern seaboard. So, I mean, we are surrounded by waters and, you know, we have a very hilly, hilly mountain, uh, mountainous terrain so i mean you when when we're in that situation where it's not safe we're basically just trapped in our little peninsula where nain is and you know there is no there are no roads there are no trails going out so you know and you know people do have snowmobiles and atvs but i mean it's just conditions where you can't go that far with those types of machines right so i mean we're essentially trapped until the sea ice is safe and then we can travel to wherever we want to go okay uh, so you mentioned that the the sea ice is really important for hunting, fishing, uh, getting to other areas to gather wood. Traditionally, how would uh, Inuit communities? What are some of the techniques they would use to figure out if the ice was safe to travel? A lot of it was, you know, based on skills handed down from generation to generation. Um, you know, people would no certain types of ice just depending on the weather um a lot of people can tell the certain ice conditions by looking at it and other people you know just basically go out and risk going out on the ice to make sure it's safe for other people um but traditionally it was you know handed down generation to generation and when i was young um it's different than young people growing up now, you know, I went out on the sea ice and I learned from my father and my uncles and my people I went off with and they told me certain things to look out for. Now, now with young people, maybe not going out as often as like I was when I was a youth, um, we're finding just traditional knowledge is not necessarily getting passed down to the younger generation. So, I mean, some, like uh, some things are passed down a group. Uh, a lot of people, when they travel on, when they first travel on the sea ice, they take what is called, you know, either a harpoon or, or a duke with them. And when they go on the sea ice, you know, uh, when they're walking on the sea ice, they'll they'll walk on the sea ice very slowly, and they'll use their spear and they'll you know give it a stab two times. Um, one time is is good for walking, like on the salt water. If you spear it and it doesn't go through once, it's good for walking. Mm-hmm. Twice is. Um, good if you're, you know, taking your dog team out, right? And then if you're going three times, and you, if you hit it three times and your spear doesn't, your, doesn't go through the ice, it's good for snowmobile. But I mean, that's, that's, you know, taking that first run to make sure it's safe for everybody to go on. Right. Yeah. If you're, if you're the one out there with your snowmobile and you make a mistake, it could end really poorly. Yes. Especially, you, you know, the snowmobile is replaceable. That that's fine and dandy. But I mean, for what we do at Smart Ice, we're we're keeping people safe to to know that that they the equipment that we use they can look online and they can see. You know, maybe not to traditional knowledge of using the spear, but using the Smart Ice and the tools that we have, um, they can go on the online and then they can see for themselves that it's safe with the new tech that's out there now. So. Uh, with with climate change and you know the freeze up dates changing and the weather just being strange, um, have have some of the traditional techniques of what does the ice look like? What has the weather been doing? Um, are those 
less reliable? I I would say it, it's the old techniques are still reliable, but it's the weather has become so unpredictable and you know it one day the ice conditions may be fine um but the next day it warms up or the wind will blow and it'll just break a ball of the ice so i mean it's it's the old traditional way of checking the ice is still the same but with climate change happening more progressively um it's just one day changes right from the other right it may be safe one day and then you know next day it warms up and it becomes unsafe or the weekend the wind will just blow it out and then well you just have water there right right so it's it's, safe. it's just changing so quickly it's hard to keep track of what's yeah going on and yeah and you know there are some unpredictable spots in the ice out there here we call them rattles where it's just a you know um it's just fast moving water where it doesn't freeze so mm-hmm. with climate change you know, it's not getting as cold. It's not freezing. We're seeing more of these unpredictable rattles pop up that traditionally wouldn't have been there in the past, you know, when it was cold and it would just freeze. Yeah. So, I mean, more and more unpredictable situations yeah. are popping up. So you're the Northern Production Lead for a project called Smart Ice. Uh, what What is Smart Ice? So Smart Ice was founded in 2009. Um what was happening is here in Labrador and in the Arctic regions as well, like up in Nunavut, um, in 2009, 2010, 2011, for those three years, we had rain, we had rain in January. Oh. Yeah. So back then, you know, that was unheard of. And, you know, in those three years, we had the sea ice, it froze really nice, um, in December and then people were out snowmobiling doing what what they were doing but then again we had rain in January for those three years and so what was happening was people who were actually falling through the ice there was a study done after the, the first two years and one in 12 people were um, found to be actually falling in the ice more than what was before so the Nunatsabit government reached out to Memorial University in St. John's Newfoundland and they found um, Dr. Trevor Bell. And Trevor Bell is our founder of Smart Ice. Mm-hmm. So that's what led to the creation of Smart Ice was, again, people here in Maine um, were just unsure of the ice conditions. And again, like I mentioned, one in 12 were falling through the ice. So the government reached out to try to find somebody to help bring these um, statistics of people falling through and being unsafe and how to prevent this from happening. Yeah. So, uh, so how has Smart Ice worked to improve people's safety out on the ice? Uh, so, Smart Ice back in those days, Smart Ice and Trevor and Memorial University and with the Nunatjavid government, they partnered up to try to figure out using technology and partnering with traditional you know, knowledge how to keep people safe on the ice. Um, so, there was a pilot project done here in Maine. And also, the other part of the pilot project was done up in Pond Inlet. Mm-hmm. So the, that led to the creation of two devices that that Smart Ice makes. One is called the Smart Boy, and it is a stationary ice measurement device. It's just when it when the ice freezes out and it's safe to go out, our operators will go out, and it's basically a nine foot long thermometer. Okay. So we'll. Yeah, so we'll take it out, and it's battery-powered, and it has a GPS on it, a satellite connection, and an antenna. So we'll cut a hole in the ice, we'll in, and it, it's, it'll go in vertically. So it's a nine-foot-long vertical thermometer in the water, and it'll freeze there. And what it does is it'll actually tell us the difference. It goes by temperature. It's, it, like I mentioned, it's one big, long thermometer. Yeah. So it, it will measure the temperature of this, the water underneath, it will measure the temperature of the ice. It'll measure the temperature of the snow. And there is a portion that sticks up, so it'll tell us the temperature of the air. Right. So when the ice, the section that we're concerned about is when the ice will freeze, we can tell with that temperature difference as the ice thickens oh, okay. between the sea ice and the water, uh, the sea ice and the water. So as the temperature goes down, the ice is getting thicker. Mm-hmm. And then when it warms up, the 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 ice will melt from underneath, and we can tell that that with that temperature difference, how thick the ice is. Okay. So, that, so that's the one device that we make is a smart boy, 
Uh, again, it's just just a stationary thermometer that we put in the ice. And the other one that we make is uh, called a smart comedic, and it's um, it's a modified ground ground penetrating radar that we tow behind a snowmobile, and it will measure in real time as as I'm traveling with the smart comedic behind me. It'll tell me how thick the ice is in real time, and then when we like, when, and it'll just follow my trail. If I were to go on a 10 kilometer trip or a 300 kilometer trip, it'll just tell me the whole trip. It'll tell me the, the sea I stick this on the whole trip. And when I get back to my office, it'll automatically upload where people can see um, where the trip is and they can tell how thick the, the ice is because we have a color coding system with that. Yeah. So um, with these two methods, with the stationary boy and the academic um, sled, how is that information, how often and how is it communicated uh, to the people actually in the community who need the info. So, like I mentioned, Smart Boy is a stationary device, and the Scumric is something that we tow behind. So, we actually partnered with a website, uh, in, and they also have an app you can download, and it's called Siku S I K U. So, if you, so, people can download the app, uh, or you can go to the website siku.org, and you can actually you have to look for Smart Ice, but if, once you find out how to find our smart ice data, um, you can check. So the smart boy will send the measurements once a day. Um, so if I deployed that yesterday, if it was winter, <laughs> you, can, you can check once a day. It, it, will send, it, it will send the signal out to the satellite. It will get sent out to our St. John's office. Somebody will have to interpret, and then they will put it on the website. And it'll does, it, it does that once a day. Um, so, I mean, you know, if, if it was out two months ago, you can see how thick it was when I first put it out. And if it's still out there today, you can check it to see how thick it is now in that one area. And it's just that one area. Right. Um, so the plan, what we're doing, like right now, I have one here in Nain. Um, so, I mean, we're going to get another four for Nain, I believe. So, I mean, we have more smart boys out there. So, more information for people to see. Uh, and that's the whole thing. We want people to know. That, that is safe where we put these smart boys. Like we'll go, we, we'll have a meeting either with the town, local town councils or with the local committee and we'll ask their input. Where would you like to see these smart boys put there? Um, you know, they may want it put at a popular run where everybody goes chair fishing or they may want it on the local snowmobile trail, you know, where people travel from one community to the other. And it, it's just put it, here at Smart Ice, we don't decide to put it. We have input from the community on where they want you know, the devices. Right. So, so that's the measurements, a, yeah. the measurements get taken at the locations that's most useful for the people who are going to be out on the ice. Yes. Yes. So that's the stationary smart point ones. And then the smart community, um, again, it's just a trail. If, you know, if I decided or somebody mentioned me, hey, could you go to this place where everybody is chair fishing in the springtime or where people go to get the wood up here or, you know, could you take that snowmobile trail from Nain to the next community to make sure it's safe? And, you know, again, when I take that smart company out on a run, it's an actual snowmobile trail over the sea. So, I mean, people can log in. And I can do that every day. I can do it every two hours and people can see it. Um, but, again, it, it's just we go I, – I do the traditional runs where a lot of people go to keep them safe, mm-hmm. and then they can log in onto the SICU or – Dot org and then they can see the smart comedic runs and with the smart comedic run it it's color coded so i mean you know we have a, a diagram it'll show google maps in our own name and then again my snowmobile trail will be uploaded and then it's color coordinated and people can see very well um, what they're looking at you know and we actually what i do is every now in, in the communities that we are we have what we call operators, and they will post these maps. Like they'll take a screenshot, but maybe not, maybe not everybody has, uh, you know, internet at home, or maybe they don't have, you know, the information. So they'll either screenshot it and post it like to the local bulletin board, or they'll actually print it off and put it to the local, you know, the popular areas in town, like the post office, the local northern store, or the local government store. And then we want that information out there, so everybody can see, you know, what what we think is safe. Well, they can see for themselves. They can judge for themselves if they think it's safe. If they, if they see my trail, if they think it's safe, then they can use it. Yeah. While you're out on the snowmobile, does it give you 
a warning, say, if you're going along and the ice is getting thin. So in real time, you can decide if you need to turn around. This is the part where we where we say, you know, this is the, uh, you know, I'm not going to put a, let's just say, an inexperienced 15-year-old youth driving a snowmobile right. who, you know, who really doesn't tra- travel the sea ice a lot. I'm not going to put that person there and expect them to go, just go. This is where we hire on the local operators that has a traditional knowledge mm-hmm. as well. So, I mean, yes, they could use this computer. Uh, there's a monitor on a snowmobile that will tell them in real time. Yes, they can. But we also tell the operators, you know, don't use this just by itself. You use your traditional knowledge. Right. So, you know, um, it, it, there won't be alarm. There are certain parameters that, that, that has to be adjusted. But, I mean, there is no alarm on a snowmobile. This is, again, where we depend on the operator's traditional knowledge using the smart company as a guide if they want to. But, I mean, we tell them solely don't use this. Yeah. The, the, the reading from your smart company as, as a as a alarm use your tradition traditional knowledge and skills yeah so it's it's a piece of information that somebody would use to decide whether the yes whether the area they're riding on is safe yes yeah, yeah. um so with the sensors and and the sleds and whatnot um where are those built uh, so the smart comedics, they're actually built in our St. John's office. Like I mentioned, it's a modified ground penetrating radar and we, uh, we, uh, like the, the St. John's office does that. So like you mentioned, my title is called the Northern Production Lead. Um, so what we do here in Maine is, um, you know, these smart boys, the smart boys could be made anywhere. They could be made in St. John's. They could be made in Montreal. They could be made in Windsor. Um, but the thing is our founder, Trevor, wanted this to be made by Inuit for Inuit. So we're a not-for-profit agency. So Trevor want, wanted these made by Inuit. So again, they could be easily made in St. John's or Montreal or somewhere for cheaper. But Trevor wanted them made for Inuit by Inuit. So they will actually send the parts up from St. John's. They'll gather all the parts and then they will send us to here in Maine. So what I do is I hold uh, training cohorts. I will hire on six or four youth and we'll have a uh, employment readiness program where we'll train them in certain skills in, in, in employment skills, resume writing, cover letters, other training we can give them. But ultimately at the end of the course, I will train them on how to build these smart boys. Mm-hmm. And when they're successfully done the course, um, we will move from a training facility to an actual production center. So we would, after, you know, one, if let's just say I hired on six trainees and they done the course and then we were to build 20 smart boys, you know, I would hire on as many youth as, as possible as I can to safely build the smart boys here in Nain. So we, we would, so they would be built by the youth here in Nain. We test them. And then once they pass the test, I send them back to St. John's. And then from there, they're sent to wherever we have orders. So, you know, last year we we had orders made. We sent our smart boys up to Kikitarjwak, which is in Nunavut, uh, Pengertung in Nunavut, and Cape Dorset. Um, so, but they they could be just sent anywhere in Canada from that was made here in Maine. Yeah. So, so it's it's good that the knowledge is staying in the community of how to put them together and possibly repair them. Yeah. Oh, yeah. For sure. I mean, you know, the youth, like, a, so I, I, I would hire, I hire on youth from 19 to 29, and then, you know, they, they, they take the training course, and then once they actually start building the smart boys, and you see the pride they take in it. Once the youth know that they're building something to help save other, you know, you can see the pride in them, and that's the best part of this job. Yeah, it's nice that it's it's something that's really community driven. You know, that the boys are built and where the boys are distribute like installed every winter so that the community has you know ownership over what's getting collected and, and where it's getting collected and you know we tell you you know guys be glad to know that you're building something that will help people safe in your home yeah for sure the youth are really proud at this point in the interview we ran into some technical difficulties so apologies for the sudden change in sound quality 
I had asked you before the technical difficulties uh, whether there were any aspects of the Smart Ace program that you were really proud of or happy with that we haven't talked about yet. Okay. Yeah, again, the biggest thing for me is help training this youth to give them employability skills. I mean, we hire them on for a short term. Um, so, you know, my one of my big things is I hope the training course we give them, um, you know, helps them be able to jump on life to either um, pursue further education or, or pursue long-term employment. So that was one of the biggest, that's one of my biggest senses of pride I get from this program. The other program, the other side of it is I actually, I actually, in my role, I actually get to travel to the communities where we send these smart boys. Um, and I travel, and I travel, so this past year I traveled to three communities in Nunavut to help deploy and train the operators in these smart boys. And we'll actually train them on how to, dip, on how to do minor maintenance on the smart boys, on the smart comedics, on how to use smart comedics and give them a bit of troubleshooting with it. And we actually meet with uh, the communities when we're up there with the operators there and, you know, we tell them, we are just the trainers for these guys and girls if we have them. And then they're going to use this equipment. We'll give them the training on how to use the equipment safely and then they'll, we'll give them the skills so they can post to your community on how to keep them safe. That's the other big thing as well, knowing I'm training people that they're taking this, this skill set that I'm giving them to help keep the people in their home community safe. And to me, that's the other big thing working with Smart Ace as well. Yeah, for sure. You know, unfortunately, with climate change happening the way it is now, it's just getting worse for people who live in northern communities. And the tools that Smart Ice is providing, it's it's going to be on the rise. So, I mean, really, honestly, we're pioneers in doing something that we're doing to help keep northerners safe and being built by Inuit to help save Inuit and other non-Inuit people, of course. Um, safe is just, you know, something that Smart Ice takes pride on. It's unfortunate, but also, I guess, nice that you guys were there to expand and and sort of fill the need. It would be better if the need wasn't. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, it's it's good. Unfortunately, it's good for Smart Ice, but for every, for everybody else, it's it's bad because climate change is not going to slow down. It's not going to stop. Um, so we're needing tools more and more. What Smart Ice is providing now just to help keep people safe. Thanks so much for your time. Yes, you're welcome. I'm glad to talk to you. You can learn more about the Smart Ice program and find links to information about it on our website, sciencefortheople.ca. Next up is Dr. Trevor Bell. Dr. Bell is a physical geographer and field scientist at Memorial University of Newfoundland. He studies landscape and seabed history and climate change impacts in Arctic coastal communities. Well, thanks so much for speaking to me today. You're very welcome. So I have a pretty introductory question, but what does geography have to do with climate change research? Well, I think geography uh, it really focuses on uh, spatial issues and spatial patterns and especially in this case humans and the environment and i think um in arctic environments um you know there's a very intimate relationship between the indigenous peoples who live there and have lived there for centuries to millennia and the geography of 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 their land and the geography of where they travel so you know i think uh, probably what's most surprising maybe to to your listeners is that a frozen ocean is the normal condition for Inuit living in in the north so when we think about sea ice uh we think about maybe that only occurring as in in sort of uh Atlantic Canada maybe for a couple of weeks after winter Whereas in the north, it's there for six to nine months of the year, maybe even more in some communities. And of course, our seasons are different too, because we have four seasons and most people think about sea ice as being something that occurs in the winter. But when you have sea ice occurring for nine months of the year, 
it's not you can't really it's not really winter and winter doesn't always have that negative connotation that it has in the south um sheila watt luthier uh who was nominated for nobel prize she wrote a book talking about the right the right to be cold and it's the idea that you know inuit really look forward to 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 that a uh, season where the sea ice is frozen in and we're able to travel on the ice and over the land and the snow and of course they're able to access a lot of uh food country food to feed their family they're able to travel in and other communities more easily it's it's to them it's now it's 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 a really in fact their seasons are uh, are more framed around hunting Mm-hmm. And, and harvesting and what animals they're able to access to talk about different seasons. Maybe it's geese or maybe it's the narwhal or maybe it's seal pups or, you know, so there's a different, it's a very different type of frame. And of course, spatially geography captures that in thinking about how, uh, they live with that environment. How is that environment changing? How is that impacting Inuit? And of course, the environment is always changing and the Arctic has always been changing. There's always been uh, shifts in uh, the weather and climate from interannually from year to year and the same with sea ice. And what makes climate change s- so challenging for Inuit livelihoods and lifestyles is the fact that the the changes that they're witnessing right now are unprecedented and really unpredictable. And that challenges their uh, incredible knowledge of that land and of that sea ice, which is based on uh, a, a more typical sort of conditions or maybe tuned into that interannual change, but nothing like what they see now. So, so whether they're young people or whether they're elders, they're going to the ice where it always was safe. And, and so the, the ice is, is rougher. It's hard to travel on. Maybe the seasons are getting shorter. It's freezing up later. It's breaking up earlier. And so the, it, it's sort of the traditional knowledge of, of those changes is challenged sometimes by uh, how climate change is making the conditions so unpredictable and unprecedented in their in their time. Yeah, that was one of the things that that Rex uh, Howell had mentioned when I was speaking to him was that the ways of testing the ice still mostly worked, but the ways of predicting sort of what the ice would be based on what the weather had been were less reliable because the weather was just changing so quickly that's right and and that's in a sense um how really i got involved uh, particularly with the sea ice monitoring i've been uh working very closely with inuit communities especially in nunatsuvut and working on a lot of community research priorities um the focus is all has been for me in the last decade or so around action oriented research. I think that, you know, Inuit were telling me, you know, we need to do something now. Climate change is not something that is, will influence us or impact us in the future. It's impacting us now and has been for the last decade or so. And so they had a particularly warm winter, which Rex may have talked to you about, uh, where literally like one in 12 Inuit that were surveyed in this community had fallen through the ice. And this is traveling along trails that they've done so for centuries. And suddenly it's failing them. And it made people very fearful of traveling on the ice. Obviously, when that many people are having close encounters by going through the ice, maybe losing their skidoo, nobody lost their life, but nevertheless, incredibly traumatic to be out on the ice and going through it and, and just, you cannot imagine it. And sometimes you're talking about traveling in the darkness. Um, uh, so, so, so basically people 
started worrying about the, the, the safety of those trails. They weren't going out hunting as much. They weren't able to get firewood because the travel routes to get, uh, firewood was, was, was over the ice. And so they were having to do things like burning their furniture to, to keep their houses warm. Um, it really impacted and, and, and I was asked if working with the United States government, we could co-design some way in which technology could be used not to replace traditional knowledge of ice travel, but to augment that knowledge to provide some sort of, um, sense of what, of ice, ice thickness and ice conditions. Uh, remotely without them having to travel on the ice to find that out. And of course, that was what was causing a lot of the issues. Mm -hmm. So that's really where, uh, smart ice, uh, started was in Nunatsuvit, where we started to develop technology sensors that would be able to remotely detect the ice thickness, especially along travel routes where people were traveling and, and, uh, working with Nunatsuit, we designed a stationary sea ice thickness sensor that could measure the ice thickness in the snow depth, which snow's depth is very important for ice thickness because it can insulate the ice and cause it to be much thinner, insulates it against those cold temperatures. So when you have a lot of snow, the ice is generally thinner, less snow, the ice can grow thicker. So and that was that information then was relayed back to the community through uh, satellites. So we developed that instrumentation and um, then working with another community in Nunavut, Pond Inlet, we, we started to develop a mobile sea ice thickness sensor, which basically is carried on a sled and towed behind a snowmobile. And it built on some work of Christian Haas, uh, who at the time was at York University in Canada, where he was using it for scientific purposes. And I, we worked together to adapt it as sort of an operational technology that would allow the operator of the snowmobile to actually be able to read off the thickness of the ice beneath them as they traveled on it. But also it would save that information and then be uploaded and available to the community uh, through Wi-Fi in the community. And, and it basically is a color-coded ice thickness track of where that person travels. So maybe they may travel 100 kilometers out along a trail from the community, and then it shows where, obviously, it's thin, maybe red, much thicker is blue. So it gives people information that they can suddenly say, well, let's pick another travel route today if we're going to a certain location the ice is starting to thin and then so that that was th that's two of the main types of technology that we've developed in smart ice to help communities yeah so with arctic sea ice you mentioned that in the north a frozen ocean or an ice covered ocean is sort of the norm how extensive is sea ice how extensive is it in the winter and how extensive is it in yeah. the summer? So this is, this is where uh, geography comes back into it again. But once again, for many of your listeners, uh, when they hear about, you know, the Arctic Ocean ice, um, and that's often in the news because, of course, it's, it's getting a lot smaller. But there we're talking about the ice that's over the Arctic Ocean. And it's drifting basically with currents and it, it for, it forms and melts each year. Sometimes there are multi-year ice. So ice obviously survives the summer and it gets thicker, um, mm -hmm. over time. But really what we're talking about is something different. It's called landfast ice. So Arctic communities are on the coast and a lot of the Canadian communities and even along in Alaska will be tucked in along the coast and it's the ice that grows out from the coast and is, as the name suggests, it's, it's fast to the land. So it's frozen to the land and uh, therefore it's not drifting. 
Oh, okay. And it's uh, and so this is the 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 platform that uses a winter highway, if you like, and it's um, and of course the edge of that ice, that landfast ice, is called the flow edge, and it's a really important area because out outside of that you have frozen ice drifting along in the currents, but the landfast ice is solid, and at the edge of that landfast ice. It can be highly productive. Lots of marine mammals, lots of seals, polar bears, narwhal, you know, seabirds. So it's, it's an area that's really can be quite important, especially in the springtime for, for communities for hunting. Um, so it's that platform that we're talking about that is it's, it's freezing later, breaking up earlier. For instance, this spring, you know, you, the landfast ice around the community of Arctic Bay broke up uh, earlier than expected. Um, we're trying to work out why that is, wh- whether it's warmer water, stronger currents. Um, currents especially is something that Inuit have noticed of, of change, are getting stronger. And it tends to uh, melt the ice from underneath which of course is highly dangerous because as you travel across the ice, of course it does, it looks as if it's just normal ice at the surface, but it has been thin from underneath. And that, that's a very dangerous situation because you can go through the ice. So essentially that, that, that ice, um, in many communities will start, used to f- start to form in October. Now it's starting to form only in November, December, sometimes in January in more southern locations. And it goes from just a, a thin, greasy area of, of just ice crystals on the water and eventually freezes to, to, uh, two meters, six feet, maybe even more thick, depending on how far north you are. So it's quite, it, it, you know, it's quite a solid platform under, under, those perfect conditions and ideal for travel on. I mean, it can be a hundred kilometers out from, from the communities. It depends whether you're in a, a sheltered sort of archipelago where, you know, the land, the ice is frozen to all sorts of land around you, or you could be facing out onto the Arctic Ocean and maybe only maybe tens of kilometers wide. So it, it just depends um, on the coastal geography, how extensive it is. But nevertheless, people, because it is uh, usually thick, because it's usually smooth, it, Inuit have used it to travel along the coastline uh, to fishing grounds, to hunting grounds, uh, it's been very dependable until the last couple of decades where, you know, there's been concern about it's, it's not as extensive, it's thinner, it's unpredictable. Yeah. So even if you know where the edge of the ice is, that doesn't really give you a good idea of how thick it is between the edge of the ice and the shoreline. Well, of course, um, Inuit would 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 have a really good understanding of the ice, and they are able to use their surroundings to be able to understand the ice conditions normally. So they they look for the color of the ice. They look for um, as as Rex might have explained. They use a harpoon and yeah. they knock on the ice a couple of times, and they can tell. The thickness of an ice, whether it's safe just to walk on, safe to travel on with a skidoo. Right. Yeah. Um, but, but they also are able to detect places where, you know, where the snow has fallen right on top of the water and it looks, you've got a layer of snow on water, which of course is incredibly dangerous because it has no bearing capacity whatsoever. You go right through. So, I mean, their knowledge of ice is so much greater than, than ours because they've lived on that ice. So to give you an example, I mean, you know, I'm going to just 
guess here, but there's probably around, you, you know, 15, we have about 15 scientific names for different types of ice. And largely, it's, it's around ships traveling through that ice. So mm. it's around, you know, is it, is it, the, for them, thick ice, of course, is dangerous. They're looking always for thin ice and they, 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 they have different names for it. But Inuit have up to probably a hundred different words for sea ice. So their knowledge of the different types of ice and it's about traveling right on that ice as opposed to a ship traveling through it is very intricate and very knowledgeable and, and taught. And really it's not a, it's not a word. These are, these are words that can't easily be translated into English because they, we, we don't have equivalent words. And they also describe whether that ice, it's a, sometimes it's a process as opposed to a feature. And it, it built into it is, you know, the safety of it as well. And so, you know, as Smart Ice has been working in different communities, we've been asked by Inuit elders to to help them document for younger generations this type of traditional knowledge, which um, is really they see as really important for building the resilience to climate change in the communities. And I, I, I think I've read papers that suggest that this is true. In fact, in across the world with indigenous peoples, that that traditional knowledge is the core resilience that needs to be uh, uh, supported and strengthened as much as possible for those communities to adapt to changing climate. So in, in many of our communities, of course, Inuit uh, didn't necessarily have the tools to document or write down their traditional knowledge. So, But now they have asked us if we can help them do that for the younger generations, because younger generations tend, um, first of all, they don't have the same access to the ice, perhaps because, which is a good thing, they're staying in school longer, they may have uh, salaried jobs in the community, so they're not out on the ice every day necessarily. And because with climate change, the ice is becoming more unpredictable, they really feel that this knowledge needs to be communicated. Like, how do you, how can you tell thinner ice as you, as you see it, as you look out onto the landfast ice? How can you tell where the areas are with the stronger currents? How can you tell if the ice has in some way been thinned from underneath? And how do you prepare to go out on the ice? And, and especially in springtime when the ice is, is so dangerous, but also when people are traveling out on it so much springtime, I mean by probably May, June, because now you're into 24 hours of daylight and uh, Inuit families want to be out on the ice at that time. It's a real time of family time out on the ice hunting and it's, you know, it's, it's relatively warm. Um, so, uh, they've asked us to document, and that's why I can tell you that there are, uh, almost, you know, in, in Pond Inlet, I think we documented over 65 terms and we're still not finished documenting that ice inf- that ice knowledge. That's so important. And of course, uh, what we do is we are always uh, conducting and documenting this information in Inuktitut. So we involve young people in that process, and they're the ones who are uh, helping to obviously define those that terms and, and listen to the elders and write it down. And then we also hire them to uh, create visuals of the ice as well and to make it available through digital media. Because believe it or not, uh, in the north, Facebook, for instance, is, is the the primary way in which people communicate it's it's an incredible um uh, dev- device and software for people to communicate with each other so we're trying to develop new sorts of products that would help them um learn and understand this knowledge that they would normally have gotten by being out on the ice every day with their parents their grandparents and which now i think is is really important for them to understand so there's there's the aspect of the work that is 
recording um, the traditional knowledge and information by Inuit for the use by Inuit. Um, yeah. But then also there's the aspect of it where the scientific community has a long history of downplaying or neglecting that traditional knowledge. How does it affect the scientific discussion to have that knowledge recorded in, you know, in writing and scientific papers? Well, I, I think, uh, I suppose to help clarify there, I mean, for us, for me, it's, it's not about published papers. It's not about the scientific community. For me, it's about empowering communities and helping them adapt to changing climate. And part, this is using their own knowledge. Catherine Wilson, she has, in a sense, documented one of the ways in which she has helped use that knowledge to, to, for, for the community themselves to strengthen their own self-determination in doing research for their own benefit. I mean, scientific research obviously is designed to address scientific questions. Very often, the and, and certainly for decades, they have not addressed the priorities of communities. And that, those are very different rationales. And, and, and for one of them, traditional knowledge is at the core. And, and as you, as you rightly observed, for the other, a, people have found that very difficult to integrate with their own scientific information. And a big difference is, of course, traditional knowledge is holistic and, and basically based on experience and observation, decades, centuries, millennia of, of knowledge of that, of, of the land, and the ecosystem as a whole. And whereas, you know, as, as science today being so siloed as it is, we go out and we take very specific observations, very narrow focus. And although we try to interpret that within a larger ecosystem, what uh, indigenous people do, what Inuit do, is they start with that larger picture and are able to, to, uh, record an integrated change. And so very often that is not recorded by an instrument that's recorded and passed on to stories. And those stories have built into them the knowledge about how the land is changing or how the ecosystem behaves under certain conditions. And so it's very difficult for, for sort of scientists to be able to integrate that with with their knowledge. So one of the ways Smart Ice has, has deals with this is really what we do is we train Inuit who have that knowledge and who live on the land to be the scientists as well, to help operate the technology, to be able to uh, document information that's helpful perhaps for scientists, but it's also they're using their knowledge to decide where they should be making those observations or what what might be most relevant and especially then in communicating it back to their communities they're able to do that in a way that uh, is accessible to the community but it's, it's information that's trusted by the community because it's one of their own members who has, has documented documented it so for us and i think this is a little bit about that empowerment of the community, it is to to train Inuit to be the scientists, and especially young Inuit who, you know, have grown up with, you know, technology in their hands, maybe smartphones or GPSs or whatever, and and train them to to use the technology for the benefit of their own communities. Obviously, secondarily, that information is very valuable to scientists, but it's it's you know, for instance. Our technology is is operated on community trails. That might not be the perfect survey grid for a scientist, but it's the mo- it's uh, it's not not much point in monitoring the ice where the community doesn't travel. So for us, our priority is always 
what OptiGrade has benefit to the community and, and through their own knowledge, they're able to, uh, quite naturally design how, where they should be going, when they should be going and who should be going. Yeah. I guess that's as you were speaking, it sort of occurred to me that the bias in the question I had just asked was that I was assuming that the scientists were coming from further south weren't Inuit. And you're pointing out that really what you're trying to do is give the Inuit the tools to be basically their own scientists for their community with their own priorities that might not necessarily have been what a university setting would want. Exactly. And so that's what that, that's smart ice is, is trying to empower communities, um, and youth, uh, to, to become, uh, those, those scientists in their own communities and to be able to bridge that gap between traditional knowledge and Western science. Because you, you know, Western science is a reality and it is very helpful to Inuit communities. Inuit elders recognize the advantages of, of some of this technology and information for the benefit of their community. Uh, but it's, it can't be at the expense and loss of the traditional knowledge because, as I say, you know, when young Inuit are right, operating our equipment on the ice, it's their knowledge that will keep them safe. The, the data that's coming from our technology only augments that traditional knowledge um i'm sure you've heard stories about people who've gone out into the woods or in, you know with a gps and got <laughs> lost right a gps is it does not necessarily get you home um for all sorts of reasons it can fail or people or, or you can walk straight into a river or you know yeah you need that knowledge to avoid the hazards as you navigate your way home or in this case navigating your way on the ice yeah, technology can't provide you with all of the information to keep you safe. It just needs to be a data point in a variety of information. Yeah, it needs to, it can complement that, that, that knowledge, that traditional knowledge, that sort of common sense of traveling on the land. And I think through, through smart ice, we are, we're attempting to do that. And one of the, one of the ways that we're doing that, as you might know and your listeners might know, is that Smart Ice is a, a not-for-profit social enterprise that grew out of a partnership between communities, my university, governments that were helping to support the initial pilot projects. We we suddenly were um, had lots of other communities interested in what we we're doing, and we needed to expand. But you, of course, you cannot do that with say research grants or other types of funding so we is very much consistent with inuit societal values and so uh, many inuit communities but particularly in nunavut they've established a set of values that are really important for making decisions in the communities and these have been elders have come together and come up with these and you know it's about caring for the environment caring for the community but at the same time being innovative and being resourceful and of course all of these things you need to do to survive on out on the land and has been something that has been developed um, by Inuit communities over centuries and millennia but you know I think a social enterprise is sort of a, a business model that helps us respond to community needs but it also allows us to um build the skills and the capacity of young people in the communities. And by young people, you know, the definition in northern communities is, is probably anybody under 30 years of age. Right. Which in many Inuit communities makes up a 50, more than 50% of the community. So it's a very young population because so often they see others coming up into the communities, you know, conducting monitoring of different types of animals or environmental monitoring and, you know, only hiring young people in the communities, you know, to be a bear monitor or to be a camp 
cook. And, you know, they, they, what we do is we give them the skills that they're the ones who can operate that technology and we put into their hands that technology and they are able to then operate for the community or to operate it for other companies or mining companies or other people who are shipping companies who need that information as well. So we're trying to uh, build that capacity in the north because I think that, I mean, what your listeners probably don't know is the extent of the social inequality that exists in these indigenous, indigenous communities between those and communities to the south, but even between Inuit and non-Inuit living in those same communities. They don't have the same opportunities, incomes, uh, educational op- training opportunities. And so what we're trying to do is, uh, I guess, addressing the need to, to help them adapt to climate change, but at the same time giving them the tools to be able to uh, keep pace with a very much changing uh, economy and society in the North. Right. Yes, that makes a lot of sense. It's it's hard for young people, it's hard for anybody to think about climate change if they're hungry all the time. Yes, that's... Uh, for those really at that forefront of climate change impacts, we also need to make sure that they, as a, that we help them maintain the resilience and build that resilience wherever they see and need. Yeah, that's been one of the criticisms of large environmental movements is that they're predominantly white. And part of that is because white people have the increased power and wealth to to spend time on that. Whereas if you're trying to just get by, you might not have the extra time or extra just emotional bandwidth to deal with that. Yeah, and then I extend that to sort of educational qualifications or educational opportunities. I mean, so many scientists travel into the Arctic and, you know, maybe they're dealing with ocean acidification, but they don't always uh, talk to the indigenous populations about well, why, why, why are they studying that? Why is that important? Sharing that information. Um, and and then seeking out that traditional knowledge that might help their own science. So it's it is it, there's a there maybe built-in biases there about what are those strengths and resilience of those communities and what they can offer, as well as um, how they can how we can help strengthen and 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 help them help themselves. Um, I think that's probably a good place to wrap up. But before we do, is there anything that I didn't ask you about or you didn't get a chance to mention that you think is worth us uh, discussing and bringing into the conversation? Um, I might add that um, I, I think that one of the things that we've been sort of talking about is that um, self-determination for indigenous peoples. And, and then that's, if you like, I think the, the umbrella term for a lot of the things that we've discussed here, although maybe it was climate change and adaptation or social inequality, but that idea of, uh, for all indigenous people, self-determination in how they should be responding to climate change, what research questions should be asked, um, how research should be conducted, and 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 maybe how funding should be allocated. I think I think that is a obviously a growing uh, desire by all indigenous groups, and particularly in the Canadian North, um, where Inuit have quite explicitly, uh, you know, uh, very very clearly communicated their wish to have self determination. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. Uh, thank you for your interest. You can learn more about Dr. Bell's research and find links at our website, scienceforthepeople.ca. Thanks for joining us, and we'll be back next week with more Science for the People. Science for the People is listener-supported. 
You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount. Your support keeps us afloat and able to keep making great new episodes, and we thank you for it. The show is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. We get help with special projects from K.O. Myers. Our theme song was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern, and its title is Binary Consequence. The show is hosted by Bethany Brookshire, Anika Hazra, Marion Kilgour, and me, Rochelle Saunders. Thank you.